0: The Word of God, Judges chapter 16. I'm dealing with the death of Samson, but he was born in chapter 13. This is one of those incredible stories in the Bible. It is so exciting. He keeps us on the edge of our seats. Judges chapter 16. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson's here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. Oh, but Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, Whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, "See if you can lure him into showing you the strength of his <clears throat> secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him, so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson asked her, If someone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been dried, and she tied them with him. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it's close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. We continue at verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So she told him everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head was shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he told her everything, she sent word to the, lead, to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength... "'Left him. "'Then she called, "'Samson, the Philistines are upon you.' "'He awoke from his sleep and thought, "'I'll go out as before and shake myself free.' "'But he did not know that the Lord had left him. "'Then the Philistines seized him, "'gouged out his hands and his eyes rather "'and took him down to Gaza.' Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate saying, our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Or when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I I may lean on them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson Perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood bracing himself against them his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other samson said let me die with the philistines then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and of all the people in it thus he've killed more people when he died than when he lived. This is the word of God.
1: It's really good to be with you as we continue our series on uh, a Christian life of integrity. And today we're thinking about the practice of self-control. We're looking at the story of Samson in the book of Judges and. After Joshua, which is a very orderly book, we find that Judges is quite a chaotic read. It's a book that's got comedy, it's got tragedy, it's got passion and riddles, it's got political satire, it tries to mock all the foreign kings and ridicule them. It's a book that really wants to entertain us. We find hero figures of ancient Israel. We find elements of saga that tries to teach us by negative example. And so we find that it's a what not to do kind of a story. So whilst it loosely presents as a historical narrative, it's it's not a book of historical facts. It's a book that wants to engage with us. It invites us to mull over and to think about the implications of the things that we encounter. And it's clear from the beginning in this text that it wants to give us a warning. Now, the book's set in the early Iron Age in Canaan, and it deals with the period following the death of Joshua. You'll remember that in uh, Genesis 15, God promises the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. It's the promised land. And then in the book of Joshua, We see the land allocated to the 12 tribes, as you can see up here. But the Canaanites, especially down here on the coastal plain and some of the cities in the north, they resist um, Israel's conquest. And so what we find is the tribe of Dan over here, uh, to which Samson belongs, they end up confined to the hills and they can't get a foothold over here in this area. Um, that is part of their allocated land. And so Judges opens with an explanation. It wants to tell us why it is that this this conquest of Canaan that's been promised to their ancestors is still incomplete. In chapter two, the Israelites are told that their failure is not because of the the iron chariots and the, the fortifications of the Canaanites. It's because of their own unfaithfulness. And what's happened is that the Israelites have become very immersed in the um, Canaanite culture in which they live. They've intermarried. And so they've adopted the, the pagan gods and the practices of the Canaanites. They've allowed their altars to stay standing in the land. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's withdrawn. He's withdrawn his help. And so right from the beginning we learn of this this underlying problem of um, apostasy, of turning away from God. And indeed, what we find is that with every judge, we get this repeating cycle. First of all, Israel does evil in the eyes of Yahweh. It turns away from God. So then um, God allows the enemy to come and oppress them. So they cry out to Yahweh and Yahweh responds by raising up a leader, a judge, to come and rescue them. The enemy's defeated, and we come back to a time of peace. Until, yet again, um, Israel does evil in the sight of Yahweh. It becomes unfaithful to Yahweh again. We get oppression, we get crying out to Yahweh, another judge is is raised, then back to a time of peace, and so on, and it goes round and round with, with each of the judges. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this painting, we saw it um, a few years ago in the Saatchi Gallery in London. It, I don't know if it's still there. It's by Jonathan Wateridge, and it's called Space Programme. And it's, it's a huge painting. It's, it's floor to ceiling. And the first thing that you notice is that it's a little bit unsettling. And then progressively, you notice details that suggest that things would not end well on this space journey. You might spot... A milk bottle top, perhaps, or a mobile phone keypad that make up the construction of the spaceship. You might notice that there's um, plumbing parts that make up the spacesuits, and you realize, as you look at it, that you would be this would be a doomed voyage. The picture engages with us. It, it's sending us hints and clues that this would not end well. And judges uses this cycle in quite a similar way. It's sending us clues and hints that things are not quite right in the book of Judges. Things aren't going to end well. The first judge is Othniel. Who's, he's like the ideal judge. He's the model judge. And with him, everything's fine. He, he makes a good marriage. He faithfully follow, um, follows Yahweh's call to deliver Israel. And we happily go round the cycle. But then, with every subsequent judge we find that there's some part of the cycle that isn't quite right. As the judges follow their own self-interests, it's all about themselves, and, and the tribes of Israel fall into disunity. And so this cycle deteriorates, sending us clues that things are not quite right. This isn't going to end well. And always we have that underlying warning of apostasy. Look what happens when Israel turns away from God. And so now we've got Samson that opens in chapter 13 and it's full of great promise. He's the last judge that we see. He's given the most um, space in the book and his birth unfolds a bit like an annunciation um, scene. We are anticipating the birth of a really great figure. Yahweh's messenger comes and he tells a barren wife that she's going to bear a son. And that this son is going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. It's got a similar pattern, quite familiar. And so we discover really early on that Samson has a divine calling. He is to be a Nazarite, somebody who is set apart for God's purposes. He's going to be holy. And we know from the book of Numbers, chapter six, that as a sign of this, there's three things he must never, never do. One, he must never cut his hair. Two, he must abstain from alcohol. And three, he must not come into contact with any dead bodies because that would be considered ceremonially unclean. So these are signs of his faithfulness to God. And we also discover, as the story develops, that Samson has a divine gifting. He's gifted with extraordinary strength. And we see him achieve superhuman feats. In chapter 14, he kills a lion with his bare hands. In chapter 15, he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And then in chapter 16, which we heard being read in Gaza, not only does he break through the city gates, he rips them up, takes them with him as he escapes the city from the Philistines. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a typical um, Canaanite gatehouse. It was often two or three stories high. It could have had around six guard posts, making like a tunnel opening either side. And once you managed to get through that, then the city gates were substantial. You had the doors, you had two doorposts, and you had a bar as well. And we're told that uh, Samson takes these gates on his shoulders, and he takes them to the hill opposite Hebron. Now, oh, (laughs) no, there we are. Now, Gaza's here, Hebron is here, it's about 40 miles away, and Hebron is about 3,000 feet above sea level, it's uphill all the way. This would have been quite some feat of strength. And so we find out that uh, Samson is called and he's gifted, but from chapter 14, there's already signs that he's a flawed judge. He seeks self-gratification. It's all about himself. He's driven by his senses, by impulse, he's attracted to danger. And we find that Samson's weakness is his attraction to foreign women. He marries a woman from the Philistine city of Timnah, but do you remember the problem? Foreign women worship foreign gods, and that's a threat to Israel's holiness and, and their faithfulness to Yahweh. In chapter 16, we see Samson straying really far from his home when he goes to Gaza. It's deep in the Philistine territory, and there he meets a prostitute almost certainly forbidden by his, his Nazarite vow. The wisdom literature teaches in Proverbs 6, 7, 23 that prostitutes reside in the gateway to death. And there's, there's this sense that Samson here, he's being cast in the role of a fool. Samson follows self-gratification, he also follows self-interest. Having brought the, the gates of Gaza to Hebron, he then, he's done nothing but pursue his own personal vendetta against the Philistines. He's not done anything at all to help um, deliver Israel. And so, again, we, we get that sense of foolishness. Samson brings the gates like a, a war trophy to the men of Judah, but they're the very people who had turned him over to the Philistines. And so, we have this judge who, from the beginning, showed so much promise, and he ends up a story of, of squandered potential. And it's worth noting that even as we, as we, we look down on um, Samson's behavior, his irresponsible and um, rebellious ways, there's a part of Samson that can personally disturb us. He's hot-blooded. He's emotional. He's physical. He's self-centered. In many ways, he's, he's quite human. And there's something unsettling in the fact that sometimes we're able to identify with his weaknesses we too could be cast in the role of the fool and next we find that Samson comes back again towards Philistia this time to the valley of Sorek up here it it runs east to west and it's on the border between the Israelite and the um, Philistine territory and there he meets Delilah and we sense that he's come to a dangerous place. The valley of Sorek translates as a a torrent of scarlet or a a torrent of the vine. There seems to be a reference to wine. A dangerous setting for a Nazarite who, do you remember, has to abstain from drink. Delilah is shrewd. She's manipulative and she's almost prostitute-like in her business approach She's financially independent, and her identity doesn't depend on, on any male relationship. She's not just the daughter of someone or the wife of someone. She is Delilah. But remember, this was written in a patriarchal society. It's a man's world, and to be an independent woman was not something to be admired. It, it was a threat, it was something looked down on. And so we get this definite sense that the author is telling us that Delilah's a dangerous figure. Now, while Samson means little son, that's the translation, Delilah's name is very, very similar to the Hebrew word Lila, which means night or darkness. And lo and behold, we see Samson being overcome by darkness as his relationship with Delilah leads to his actual blinding in verse 21. So Samson has put himself in this really dangerous situation. And like the solving of a riddle, the Philistines want to uncover the secret of his great strength. And so we find that the the five Philistine lords, the governors of the main cities, they engage Delilah almost like a secret agent, ready to seduce, to betray him for money. And they offer her the most colossal sum. In verse 5, we learn that Delilah has been given 5,500 shekels of silver. That's about 317 kilos. To put that into perspective, it's three times heavier than all the gold that Gideon takes from his his victory against the Midianites. Abraham in Genesis only paid 400 shekels um, to buy the burial plot for his wife. One scholar um, did what I think might be a near impossible task of trying to estimate what it would be worth in today's money and he came up with a figure of 15 million dollars. By any calculation it was a huge sum and I think it raises an interesting question. I just wonder how do you imagine Samson in your mind? What's the image in your mind when you think of him? Now Would it be fair to say that we imagine Samson a bit more like the figure on the bottom than the one on the top? But the thing is that Delilah and the Philistine lords, they're not stupid. Would the Philistines really have offered this kind of money to pay for what would appear completely obvious? He's strong because he's got gigantic muscles. It's interesting that the only physical description that we actually have in the Bible is that Samson wore his hair uncut since birth in seven braids, that's all it tells us and that's because it was the sign of being a Nazarite, it's a sign of his faithfulness to God. We need to remember that Samson's strength is entirely tied up in his relationship with God. The strength is Yahweh's, but God works through him because he's a Nazarite. And so it might be that Samson looked rather more ordinary than we might imagine. And the loss of his strength later on will be down to the loss of his faithfulness, not at the loss of his actual hair or the failure of his muscles. Now, as the, um, the passage unfolds and Delilah tries to extract the, um, the secret of his strength Samson plays around with her. He teases her, he tricks her with his answers, and we see Samson's relationship with Yahweh unraveling as he progressively turns away from his Nazarite vow. He tells her that tying him with fresh and undried sinews would break his powerful strength. Now sinews, were they were tendons, they were part of a corpse, a dead body. Not only is it not true but it breaks his Nazarite vow. He's not allowed to come in contact with that. And so we see him turning away from Yahweh. He tells her later on that she needs to weave his hair uh, with a loom in order to break his strength. And here, of course, he's really playing with fire. He's really uh, teasing her because his hair involves part of the real solution to the riddle. His strength comes from Yahweh and his hair, of course, is just the, the symbol of his faithfulness to Yahweh. He's he's playing around with his Nazarite vow like a toy. Then at her final attempt, Delilah uses blackmail. She she uses feminine wiles and essentially she says to him, you don't love me if you're not committed enough to share your most intimate secrets with me. And Samson gives in, he, he bears his soul. We're told in verse 17, he told her everything of his heart. Now in Hebrew, the heart, it's the seat of the heart and the mind and the will. It's very holistic, it's the whole of your being. And so what we're seeing is a complete or an orientation of Samson, the whole of Samson, moving away from Yahweh and towards Delilah. In verse 19, they shave his head and the power shifts from Samson to Delilah. His strength leaves him Yahweh leaves him and the Philistines capture him. They gouge out his eyes, which was not an uncommon punishment for a prisoner. And so we find that the man who who tore off the gates of Gaza is now imprisoned there. And he's fallen from the very highest calling. He was commissioned by God to deliver Israel and he's now in the very lowest position. He's grinding flour in prison, a job that was um, assigned to slaves and women, people very low. And it might be with a little bit of relief at this point that we see a thread of hope in this spiral, in this downward spiral. Because it says in verse 22, that, that really significant verse, but the hair on his head began to grow again. Hair grows back, doesn't it? And um, Samson may be unfaithful, but Yahweh is not. And God achieves his purposes despite the, the imperfect people that he works through. With Samson, as with Israel, God hears their cry and he delivers them again and again and again. We see it all the way through, always judgment and grace. And eventually, we see in the New Testament, God's ultimate act of grace as he sends Jesus uh, to come and live with us and save us. But that's not where it starts. We see it running all the way through the Old Testament, judgment and grace. And Israel's survival in this period of these judges, these flawed judges, it's not from the quality of its leadership. It's not from its institutions. It's from the miracle of God's grace we come to that final showdown in the temple where Samson is humiliated. He's been asked to entertain them. It's the festival of the grain god, Dagon. And for just a moment, just a moment, Samson's attention turns back towards God. He calls out to him to strengthen him one last time so that he can destroy the pagan temple. But we see that his requests are still utterly self-centered. His motive is personal vengeance. He wants to avenge the eyes that have been gouged out. We see no concern for Yahweh or for his plans. We see no concern for the fate of Israel, whom he's supposed to be delivering. And so although he um, destroys the temple, we see this tragic waste, as the waste of his high calling, the waste of his divine gifts, as he accomplishes more for God dead than he ever did alive. So we find that the cycle's broken down. By the time we reach Samson, the Israelites aren't crying out to God anymore. In fact, they're not even involved in the fight against the Philistines. It's all down to Samson. And here are judged Samson, has no concern at all for deliverance. He's just following his self-interest. He's following his own um, self-gratification. And we don't have peace either. The enemy's only just starting to be subdued. And so the book of Judges has been warning us all the way through. Look what happens when Israel isn't faithful to God. It will not end well. And now the cycle's broken, and so has Israel. And in, that fi- in the final chapters of Judges, we see religious breakdown as um, Israel turns to idolatry. We see social breakdown with the Israelite community breaking into civil war. And we see moral breakdown. We see some of the most brutal scenes of the Old Testament. There's the horrific story of the Levite and his concubine. She's basically gang-raped, chopped into pieces, and then distributed to the 12 tribes. It's absolutely horrific moral breakdown. And it's showing us how the moral bankruptcy of individual people compromises the very institutions that should be providing stability to the community. The priesthood, the neighborhood, family life, assemblies of of religious or, or political leaders. We see that Israel's greatest threat wasn't actually external attack. It was its own internal decay, morally and spiritually. It was internal. And so with her persistent unfaithfulness to God, she keeps turning away from him. This was a warning that spoke to Israel. But it's also a warning that speaks to us, that danger of being unfaithful to God, of turning away from him in a very seductive society. That's, that's still a danger today. We need to practice self-control if we're going to remain faithful to God. And that means being aware of our blind spots. For Samson, it was foreign women. For um, Israel, it was foreign gods, Now, you may have heard this week um, of the really devastating news uh, from the Lash community. It's an organisation that builds communities of adults with and without learning disabilities. And together, they live together, they learn from one another. It's a very mutually supportive organisation. There's one just down the road in Bogna, And they released the news that their founder... Uh, Jean Vanier, had sexually abused a number of women, and it's just left those communities completely reeling. They depend on providing safe spaces for vulnerable people. And Jean Vanier was so admired by the church, by the theological world, that when he died last year, there was, there was talk of him being made a saint. He was revered in many ways. My point is simply that even called and gifted people have blind spots. We all have them. And we each need to consider, what is my blind spot? What's my blind spot? What's the main thing in my life that's drawing me away from God? And it's not necessarily a big thing. It might be incredibly small. It might be a propensity towards something. But that's the root, isn't it? The root that causes the moral decay. And it's not enough just to be aware. Yes, we recognize God's grace in our weaknesses, but that's not an excuse to do nothing about it. Practicing self-control requires active resistance. To those blind spots, if we're going to avoid the brokenness that judges has been warning us of, if we're not going to undermine our communities, with our own self-interest. And unlike Samson, that, that includes not putting ourselves in dangerous situations. Now, practicing self-control can also involve recognizing our God-given gifts. It's not very English, is it, to um, talk about our giftings. We don't like to blow our own trumpet. It's, I think self-deprecation comes more easily to the British psyche. But the truth is that God has gifted each one of us in different ways and he's got a plan for each of our lives. When we follow God's call and gifting, when we seek it, what we're doing is we're exerting self-control over our own motives, our own senses, our own impulses as we become increasingly oriented towards God and his purposes, his heart. So, If you don't think you have any God-given gifts, then please talk to someone because we can help you to discover them. We all have them. Self-control is essentially a posture of reorientation. Do you remember Samson progressively turning away from Yahweh, turning away from his faithfulness? Resisting our blind spots and responding to God's plan for us, we need to actively walk in the opposite direction. Spirit and walk towards him instead. And we've just started our period of Lent, and um, it's a fantastic opportunity to practice self-control, taking those deliberate steps to turn our attention towards God. There's lots of really, really, really good resources out there. And if you haven't started any, you might like to try This one up here, Live Lent, um, which is a free app that you can download. It's based on the Archbishop of Canterbury's commissioned book for this year. And it's been written by Ruth Valerio, who um, worships at Revelation Church in Chichester. And it's based on creation care, sharing God's heart for creation. Let's just close in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. Help us to learn from the life of Samson. As we seek to live a life of integrity, help us to follow your plans rather than our own. Help us discover our giftings. Show us the blind spots that draw us away from you. And by your spirit, give us the strength and the will to resist them to reorientate ourselves towards you. I just want to thank you for this community here at Emmanuel, our community. And I pray that as we choose self-control over self-indulgence, that it would be a place of stability and blessing for all who come here. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Having heard that, I think quite challenging Word. Let's just have a moment of quiet to reflect on it. It's maybe a good opportunity to ask the Lord, Lord, are there any blind spots in my life that I need to know about? Because it's very easy for us when we read Judges. You know, Samson's blind spots are so obvious. I think one of the issues for us is that sometimes we, we don't see our own, we're too close, we find it hard to see our own blind spots. We have an opportunity this morning just to ask the Lord. Lord, is there anything you need to point out in my life? Are there any things that are undermining the calling on my life, the gifts you've given me? Are there Places where I'm pursuing self-interest rather than your call on my life to set others around me free. And the Lord never does guilt. He never does shame. If he puts his finger on something, it's only because he wants to set us free. It's only because he wants us to have more. So let's wait on the Lord for a moment or two. There are a couple of people in the Bible who uh, say when the Lord says there's disaster coming, they say, great, that's all right. I'm not going to be alive to see it. That's fine. (laughs) And actually, the Lord judges them really harshly. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, each of us has a calling to bring life into our sphere of influence, wherever that is, whether that's in our families, whether it's in our workplaces, we have a, a gifts and a call to bring into that, and um, uh, may we stand together. I just want to to pray and to release over us that calling. You know, there's 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 a sense in which in in. The New Testament in the Kingdom, we all have a similar calling to Samson you know in the old you know, in the Old Testament, specific people were called for specific tasks um, and um, but in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is available to all the whole people of God are called to be involved in the deliverance of both individuals and our nation and i'd just love to pray both for um the freedom from any stuff that, um, that constricts us in our relationship with God, but also, you know, Jules was talking about that our gifts and calling are really important and actually part of uh, living in a right way. It's not just about going, oh, I mustn't do this, I mustn't do this, it's I mustn't do this. It's actually about being released into what the Lord is calling us to. And as we pursue that calling, you know, we do find that stuff just falling away. So Father God, Lord, we thank you for what we've heard. Thank you for what you've heard of Samson's life. And we we are disquieted um, seeing in his failures um, our own weaknesses and blind spots. And Father, we want to choose to turn away from those things, to turn away from uh, our self-indulgence and our pursuit of our own interests. And Father, we recognize the gifts that you've given us. We recognize the call that you've given us. And Father God, we want to say yes to you today. We want to say yes to everything that you're calling us to. The calling to bring your love, your life into every relationship that we have. And we're not going to get hung up on the bits of our lives that aren't there yet but we're going to say yes to you to step in to the things that you've got for us. And we choose that today in Jesus' name. Well, it may be that you would like uh, someone to stand with you in prayer this morning. um, Either over, if you do have uh, maybe a blind spot uh, that you know you would like prayer for, uh, then members of the prayer ministry team will be available. Likewise, if you would like to be more released into the good things that the Lord's got for you, his call on your life, uh, the gifting that he wants to give you again, uh, the ministry team will be here in the the front right-hand corner of church. Please do come and ask for prayer. If you have a, a need for physical healing or breakthrough likewise we'd love to have a chance to pray with you and otherwise have a great week uh, we're back here at 10 o'clock uh, next sunday and please do remember buying a J john just one tickets from paul and um, we've got the uh, fundraising lunch for uganda next week as well and now may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Please do stay for tea and coffee now and prayers available here at the front of church.